0: And welcome back to the What The Fork podcast in association with Viber Goalkeeping. Today's guest is an absolute belter. She's fresh off the back of winning the Women's Championship with Leicester City. Welcome to the show, Scotland defender Sophie Howard. How are you doing, Sophie? All right?
1: Yeah, good. Thanks. Thanks for having me as well.
0: No, absolute pleasure. It's absolutely fine. Thank you so much. Um, I think there's no other way to start this straight from the top. Obviously, we're going to go back and do your full career, but I can't ignore the fact you've just won a title. So, uh you're not a stranger at the WSL, but how are you feeling about promotion?
1: Now, obviously, getting promoted is, is really exciting. It's a massive achievement for not only myself, but all players, all staff and the whole club itself. Um, that was something we kind of a target we had set ourselves from from the get go. And um, to finally be able to say we, we won the championship and we're going to be competing in the WSL next year is, is massive.
0: I spoke to um, Shannon O'Brien, who obviously joined in the January, literally about three, four weeks ago. And she just spoke so much. She was really glowing in a, in a credit towards Leicester City, not just the team, not just the players or the management, the football club as a whole. Um, she mentioned a lot about the one club mentality, which some clubs say they do. Not all clubs actually do it, if we're honest. Um, but Leicester feels like a family from the outside looking in. How have you felt about the club since you joined in the summer?
1: 100%, I can only agree with Shannon. I mean, there's a lot of clubs out there that say you're one club, um, but you can you really get that feeling with Leicester. And I think that makes the club so attractive and kind of um, promising for not only the men's or the women's side, but just as a whole. Um, obviously, you just mentioned Shannon joined in January and I think things look really, really great in January. But um, for me, obviously signing in, in July... Uh, we've been through some rough times, um, but I think that that's made this season so special that we've kind of come out of it stronger, and um, we were able to, given all the conditions, kind of, yeah, thrive from these, and in the end, win the championship. Um, and a big, big part is that I think we, as a women's side, feel valued and appreciated by, I wouldn't say the men's side, but just by the whole club, and it is definitely a one club mentality. And as I said, this makes Leicester so special. And for me, at the moment, is Leicester is the club to be at.
0: I quite like the fact that it seems both teams, both first teams, interact a lot on social media and stuff as well. It's not like a occasional tweet from the the men's side. It's actually both sides interact with like both teams. Both first teams are like total. It feels quite equal, which is how it should be, but it isn't always that way, is it?
1: No, it definitely isn't that way. Um, I mean... Yeah, you unfortunately often get women's side that aren't neglected, but um, I can only speak highly of Leicester as a club. Um, I know that our manager is interacting with them, the men's manager, uh, so John and Brendan are messaging back and forth, and you don't get that a lot. Um, and again, I go back to, I think part of our result or, or our, yeah, success is maybe based on that we feel appreciated and valued. Um, I think given the COVID situation, we haven't been able to interact as much as potentially we would have liked to um, but obviously safety and health comes first but um I'm really excited to see how we can build this this connection this relationship within the club
0: I was looking at obviously sometimes you see clubs from the outside and there was occasional comments about Leicester and the fact that they had investment and so on and so forth but I've I've repeated this quite a bit. Obviously I'm from the northeast of England, so I, I watch Durham on a regular basis and how difficult of a side they are to face. I've seen Sheffield United in the flesh maybe a month ago. I know how good of a side they are. Um considering how I don't want to say easily you won the league, considering how much you dominated the league with teams like that in it, do you think people have maybe underestimated how successful of a season it was outside of the club?
1: Um, maybe, yeah. Maybe you forget of all the work we had to put in. Um it seems like a quite dominating and you used the word easy. I know you, you didn't mean it that way, but mm-hmm. people will think it was easy and it definitely wasn't easy. We still had to put all the work in, we still had to like commit hundred percent. Um and for us to dominate the league the way we did just shows that all our hard work, yeah, not not only was worth it, but everything we kind of kind of put in from day one um worked.
0: Yeah, and it definitely seems so. And like I say, I mean, only I mentioned a few of the teams then, some of the strikers you would have came up against as well. It's it's really not an easy league. I mean, Katie Wilkinson's probably the standout. Um, you don't just go on a football field and win that with investment. Uh, they're very, very tough teams to come up against. And it was a well deserved championship win. And like you say, dominant as well. I think it was probably too underappreciated from my and from the outside looking in. But one thing I really liked, I watched. Um, Obviously, I spoke to Shannon a few weeks ago before the Man United game, um, which we will come on to because we have to. But you had a parade around the pitch. I see fans are back in the stadium, which is great. Uh, but you've had like a season without playing with any fans at all. You talk about the one club mentality. I've seen everyone singing champions and stuff like that as you're going around. After seeing the fans and being so long without them, does it make you even more excited for going into next season? Though you've got that kind of backing within the stands already.
1: Oh, gosh, definitely. I think for me personally, when I joined, we were already in lockdown and fan, fans weren't um, permitted our games. So actually, I haven't played the Leicester game with fans there. So I'm really, really excited to not only meet the fans, but to have them and supporters, especially next year. It's going to be a challenge, a big, big challenge um, to compete in that league. And I think sometimes having the fans there helps you, um, helps you massively. Um, and I think it's important that the fans know that as well. We don't take that for granted at all. We know how important fans are to us. Um, but yeah, the, the little parade gave us kind of a sense of what it can be like with fans again. And again, it was probably fans that came to support the men's side, but they were so supportive of us and, and appreciative and and kind of backing us with our success. And you just mentioned the the chance that were going on in the stadium at halftime. You don't get that at any club. And it is something we do not take for granted.
0: Yeah, it was great to see. Actually, it was really, really lovely to see. Before we move away from current stuff um, and go back into the past, and then as far on as we can go, the Man United game. Um, I had spoke to, like I say, Shannon probably about three or four days beforehand. And I mean, I know Manchester United are a new club, but we spoke to Shannon about um, how we can look at Man United and the way they went up, and how they're now competing for titles and or in there and they're about. And can you take inspiration from them? And then four or five days later, after I'd recorded the podcast, you went and beat them. Um, how good of a performance was that? And how much can you base next season on that performance?
1: I think it gives us a massive boost of confidence going into next next season. I think we all knew that this game was not only going to be a challenge, uh, no doubt, but also kind of to see where we stood. Um, we mentioned earlier that we dominated the, the championship and now we're coming up against not only a WSL side, but a side that was competing for the top three, um, and then we go and beat Man U. Don't get me wrong, it was an ugly game, and um, we didn't play pretty football. But we didn't go to play pretty football. We went to win the game, and mm-hmm. um, our instructions were to make the game ugly, and we did. We stuck to that that game plan, and we went into the game. We had a rough 20 minutes. The first first 20 were yeah, we were quite exposed, but we kind of just put our heads down and stuck to our game plan. Changed a few things at, things at halftime. And I think it just showed the grit and the determination of this team to fight through. And um, again, ugly game, but we we stuck to the game plan. Uh, We had tactics that we went through the whole week and it worked in the end. Um, We were breaking, we were countering. uh, That was our game plan and it worked. Um, So credit not only obviously to the staff to come up with our game plan, but to all players that pulled it off. And even though it was a rough start, um, we just stuck to it and yeah we rewarded ourselves in the end I think.
0: Yeah absolutely I think um, like you say it was a top three team you come up against it was a team that you know not that long ago people were saying can they do the title um, and it was a big day for them as well because obviously the, the manager had been confirmed they were leaving so they would have wanted, you know great manager as well they would have wanted her to go out on a high and you kind of pooped on their party so to speak so happy days for you
1: (laughs) yeah i think unfortunately the occasion got to a few players um a few manchester players um i always look at it it can be a massive occasion you can play in a massive stadium it could be the the title winning game but in the end it's a game of football and you need to keep your head and yeah it was a massive game for all manchester players for casey stoney as well and you could see that in their goal celebration or running over to casey i do think that Potentially, underestimate is the wrong word, but they they were going into the game kind of wanting to send off Casey Stoney the right way, which I agree with. But I think they weren't ready for our fight, to be completely honest.
0: I quite like the fact that um, I've heard interviews before, and we'll come on to this later, probably when we talk about Scotland. But you strike me as someone who, and I know everyone does, but some people can live without it. But you like togetherness in a team. Yeah and Leicester really feel like everyone's got each other's backs. Do you think that's what kind of, not just carried you through that game, but the whole season as a whole, the fact that everyone's got each other's back?
1: 100%, I think. Um, obviously, you need quality on the pitch, um, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter what team you are. Um, you'll get to a rough patch. You'll get get to a, to a phase within the season where things aren't going smoothly, and that's when you need that togetherness more than... Ever throughout the season. And one of them games was Manchester United, where we started off, I wouldn't say poorly, but it was a rough start for us. And sticking together and just having one another's back is what got us through that first half. And then we could thrive after that. But um yeah, togetherness for me is massive. And I believe that you can only get through a season successfully if you stick together. Things won't always go your way, there's no doubt. And you know, you don't have to be best mates with your teammate. But once you step onto that pitch, it doesn't matter who you play next to. It's you fight for one another and you have one another's back. You hold each other accountable, but in the end, you're in it together. And there's no point in me trying to do it myself. I'm only going to be as strong as the players around me. So if I can build them up and I can show them I have your back, then I'm going to get the best out of the players around me. And they're definitely going to get the best out of me if they treat me like that as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to rewind all the way back to your childhood. Um, Because I think it's a really, really interesting story, which I'm sure is not the first time you've been told this, but obviously I introduced you before as a Scotland international, which is what most people will know you as. Um, But you're born in a town. Now, I'm not going to pronounce this incorrectly, but the way it comes across is Hannah, which I believe is near Frankfurt. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that was very well pronounced.
0: Was it well? I've yeah. been to Germany once or twice, but I've got to be honest and say most people think my German accent is terrible, so I was expecting it to be bad. So thank you very much. No, I'm
1: well impressed. Hannah, yeah, that's good. <laughs>
0: um, Germany, as I know, because I've been to a few games, and Germany is an absolutely football mad country. Um, when did you begin to fall in love with football or growing up? Um, I started playing when
1: I was five, and the reason was. Pretty much that my older brother was on the pitch and I got dragged to his games to watch. So you know how it is when Mm -hmm. your siblings play football, you grab. There's other siblings around that are watching their siblings and you just grab a ball and you have a little kick about. And that's pretty much how I got into it. And then from that kind of, not day, but that, yeah, uh, experience onwards, I was begging my parents to sign me up for football. And that's how I started at five years old. And um Never stopped. <laughs> yeah, um, I much. had a twin sister as well that tried it. Uh, it didn't, didn't really enjoy it that much, but for some reason I just fell in love with the game. Um, at five years old, and um, I just love being out there, and I just that's the thing that still motivates motivates me now is the love for the game. Um, obviously when it got more serious and there's more pressure, I think at the t- at the time I was maybe 14, 15. and that's when you think about potentially making moves to more competitive teams or leagues. Um, obviously, in women's football, I think it's massive to have an education as well as football. So that's when I decided um, I was taking the big step to join Hoffenheim, um, the club I'm used to when I was 15, almost 16, um, to play in a more professionally set up team that was competing at that time in the third tier. Um, and that's, I think, when I realised I was going to give football as a career ago and I was 100% committed to make make that work.
0: I spoke to a few players similar age to yourself, um, predominantly ones that have been brought up in England or Scotland and a lot of them talk about when they were young playing with boys teams because that's all that really existed but at risk of... Um, Seeing a whole country is with the same mindset. From from my memories and, and my experience of Germany, it's slightly more liberal country. Growing up, were you able to play more girls' teams and interact with younger girls, or was it a similar trajectory where it went from boys to then girls' teams?
1: Um so when I started, they didn't really have a girls team. So that's when I was five. Um I think when I was seven, eight, ni- seven, eight, 9, they did create a women's team or a girls' team, sorry. And actually, that's where my sister rejoined and played with the girls. Um, but I stuck to the boys until I was 15, 16 when I moved to Hoffenheim and I had to make that move to a women's side. Um, but I actually enjoyed growing up playing alongside boys. Um, so they did have girls' teams um, when I was seven, eight, nine, that kind of age. But I stuck with the boys. So I think there was the option. But for me, it was more appealing to stick to, yeah, actually my mates, because all the boys were my mates and we went to school together. And I think that's just what I was used to. And I just enjoyed that environment.
0: Do you think, obviously, I think when I was younger, especially, there was two, three good players that sort of played in my school team that were girls and, you know, same sort of similar trajectory um obviously the likes of Jill Scott's came from my area Steph Hortons came from my area and and all that kind of thing so we've got like this hub of players that have been good from from the northeast and obviously Scotland has, has produced the same which is where I live now but do you think because of the media exposure including what's going to be happening next season with Sky do you think that might become not a thing of the past but do you think it might become where like girls from the age of Five, six, maybe even younger can play in a girls' team because so many girls can now be inspired by what we see on the TV.
1: I definitely think um, the media exposure and the growth within the women's game has enabled more young girls to join girls' teams at a younger age. Yeah, um, there's more and more girls out there that want to play football. And you know how it is in a local team. If you get, I don't know, 10 girls together, you can then have a girls team. Yeah. And I think obviously it's within the UK, it's the success of the English, Scottish, Welsh women's teams um, that just help, that just support the women's growth. Um, and now we have female role models that play football professionally that young girls can look up to. Whereas when I was younger, it was Not saying there weren't female football players, but first of all, as you just mentioned, the media exposure wasn't there. Yeah. Um, And I looked up to male football players, but that was just the day and age I grew up with or in. And now I think the young girls have role models they can look up to. And you know how it is. That just inspires you and that just wants... You you just want to get to where they are. You need to have that visual,
0: don't um, you? You need to have that visual. I'm saying you need to have that visual, like... You're not going to say, I can be the next Jill Scott, if Jill Scott's not on the TV. You're not going to say, I'm going to be the next Beth Mead, the next Kimlet, or if they're not on TV. So it's no. it's come far, but I mean, next season must be really exciting with you going into the WSL and knowing you're going to be on TV every single week.
1: Definitely, 100%. I think um, the WSL and Championship have done a great job with the FA player, that they could follow yeah. all the games, um, nationally and internationally. I mean, it enabled my parents and my siblings to watch as well, which obviously I'm grateful for. But now, um, with the Sky deal, I think that's—it's not only exciting, but again, it's—it's it's kind of a, a time where now we appreciate it, we're we the valued, we've—we've we've been heard, we've been seen, and now we're getting that reward for it. Because um, I think as female footballers, we still fight every day to be accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, and that fight is going to continue for years and years and years just to create that platform for younger players coming through and I always say if that's my my kind of mission within my journey that is it Um if I'm a professional footballer to fight for this equality and for younger girls to have a brighter future then that's what what I'm doing this for.
0: It's certainly making big leaps so far so but like you say. <laughs> yeah you're right but like you say there's there's, there's still a, a long way to go. I think a lot of people do obviously talk about the positives because they're there, but it still feels that there's a long way to go, and you'll know that better than I do. Um, but we're getting there.
1: Yeah, but, I think we have to appreciate the the success we've made or the, the steps forward. But as you said, we've got a long, long way to go. Um, but we're not done fighting yet.
0: Yeah. Um, you mentioned before you had a lot of uh, you had idols growing up. But correct me if I'm wrong. Your mom's Scottish. Your dad's English. Correct. So, did you have a British team that you supported growing up?
1: Yes, I did, and I do.
0: There I am. My
1: whole family supports Liverpool. That's Uh, fine. Obviously, now I'm loyal to Leicester. I think if you play for a club, you have to—not you have to—but it's part of your identity now. Yeah. Uh, But growing up, uh, definitely in support of Liverpool.
0: I think it's funny, a lot of people here for say that and don't always think they're telling the truth. And I can honestly say I I do media for Middlesbrough. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a Sunderland boy, I'm Sunderland through and through. But once you get with your mates, your allegiances do change. I would support Middlesbrough any day as well one of the women's side over over Sunderland. And that's just because of who I work with. That's just kind of the way it is. It does happen, doesn't it, naturally?
1: Oh, 100%. I think it's just part of your job.
0: Yeah. <laughs> It means you're enjoying your job, I put it that, I put it that way, I guess. Yeah, um, definitely.
1: Yeah, i agree with that.
0: Did you have any idols growing up? You mentioned before you looked towards sort of male footballers because that was kind of the choice, unfortunately, you sort of had at the time. But who did you gravitate towards?
1: Um, I've always admired Stephen's Rod, to be honest. I'm um,
0: fine with that. I'm a Rangers man as well, so good. I'm fine with that.
1: I <laughs> yeah, agree on that as well then. Um, I think I've always looked up to not only good football players but who are good people as well and Mm -hmm. I've never met Stephen Gerard, but I can just from the way he used to hold himself on the pitch and now as a manager I think that's something I um, yeah look up to and that inspires me to not only be a good footballer because that's what we kind of get valued by Um, our performance counts but for me it's also being a good human being and as I said I haven't met Stephen Gerrard but he just comes across as a humble person which I really really appreciate
0: Obviously the first word I think of when you talk about Stephen Gerrard is the manager and the player was leader as well Um, I don't think that would be not describing you as well with the way you play on the pitch Um, did you take a lot of leadership lessons from him growing up as well?
1: Um, I think sometimes I'm someone I don't really speak up. I think I speak through my actions and I've Mm -hmm. always lived by that. Um, You can tell that Stephen Gerrard is a massive, massive leader. Now Jordan Henderson, massive, massive leader. And that's not not only because they are good footballers. They just have this, yeah, um, image about themselves. They literally put everything and everyone else before them. Yeah. Um, I... Unfortunately, get quite annoyed when people speak, but don't act upon it. Um, so sometimes <laughs> I got very impatient for that. But um, I'm someone that believes that your actions speak louder than your words. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I just thought I messed that one up.
0: No, you're going spot on. <laughs>
1: um, so, yeah, I like to lead through my actions. Um, and I think that's something that Stephen Gerard has done in his yeah. career. And is doing in his current career. Um, So, yeah, definitely took some lessons probably without knowing.
0: Yeah, you do get inspired without actually knowing sometimes, don't you? You're absolutely right. Um, You touched before, Hoffenheim was where you started your professional career. I believe you had a few youth clubs before that. um, But you joined Hoffenheim at 15, 16. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, I think Germany... And I I don't know this, I haven't lived in Germany during those times and and, and actively looked into it enough to have an actual opinion. But I think it would be fair to say Germany's long invested and embraced women in football, um, in my opinion.
1: Yes, um, I think I'd agree with that. I think um, it's all shifted a little bit, to be completely honest. I think Mm -hmm. for a long, long time, not only the German national team, but the German league was the most competitive yeah, uh, was far, far ahead of many, many leagues in Europe or across the world. Um, unfortunately, what I'm seeing at the moment is that there's a lack of investment and the English league, the Spanish league, the Italian league even, they're taking over, they're bypassing the German league and you know how it is, investment and all teams being professional, it, it makes the league attractive. So a lot of, players within Germany are leaving the German league. And that just, unfortunately, I think decreases the, the not value, but um, yeah, the level of the league. Mm-hmm. Not saying that it's less competitive, but I think this image of Germany having the best league in Europe, they've lost that a little bit. And I think, speaking to obviously mates in Germany or, or players in general, they are well aware of it and they're trying to stop it, but it's hard because it's, yeah, the English League has, I think, now is probably one of the best or the best league um, in the world. I think, and we mentioned the Sky deal. These are just things that are just going to boost the league, so it's going to be hard for Germany to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. Years back, it was definitely the best league. I think they've lost that a little bit, unfortunately, though.
0: So, when you were growing up in the the league, when it was probably probably more focused than the English leagues were at that time. Did you feel quite lucky and and quite supported that your football and education as a a teenager was was in Germany because of the way they treat you and and individuals at that time?
1: Um, Yeah, I think it's still the case that not all teams in Germany are fully professional and yeah. I was lucky to find Hoffenheim as a club because um, I was still quite young and moved away from home um, so basically moved away from home when I was 15 uh, so yeah, lived away from home for 12 years now um, but I'm used to it by now but um, I was quite fortunate that Hoffenheim valued education as well um, they found the right balance between value and education but demanding high standards on the pitch um, and that helped me to build Kind of a career besides football. So I've got my two degrees, and I'm very grateful for that because I feel like I have got something to fall back onto.
0: Because mm-hmm. you
1: don't, you don't know. It's something could happen tomorrow, and I couldn't play football anymore. I mean, not good. That's not ever going to happen. But I just think you need a plan. You need a plan ahead. You need to build something besides football. And I was fortunate enough that Hoffenheim supported me that in every way they could.
0: I suppose, in a way as well. Talking about football, best-case scenario, it's still a short
1: career, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. I think especially for female footballers. I mean, if you want to have a family, you can't play until you're 45. Not that anyone would do that. But um, football itself is a short-lived career. And you put everything into the years you're playing. um, But I think it's also important to kind of have an identity off the pitch because there'll come a time where you can't play football anymore and i think often people or, or football players struggle to find this identity after their career because for so many years not only have they committed to this football lifestyle but but they've kind of neglected the identity outside the football that they then struggle to find uh, which is understandable but for me it's always been important to have this life outside the football. Don't get me wrong, I'm 100% committed and I've moved my whole life to Leicester. Um, that's just the person I am. I can't live half-half. I can't do anything half-hearted. Um, so I've fully committed to Leicester, but I'm well aware of that. I'm building an identity off the pitch-be that friend outside of football, being that a, a degree, um, just things like that-that help me kind of not be scared of when this all is done.
0: Yeah. Yeah, completely agree, 100%. I'd love to come back with something to counteract that, but I kind of can't. You're just (laughs) right. Um, In 2012, obviously, you actually featured for Germany in the 20s, which I think is a a relatively well-known story. I don't think I'm letting anyone in on a secret with that. Um, Germany went to the tournament as favourites, but finished as as runners-up. Obviously, that doesn't sound great, because if you go favourites, runners-up, so on and so forth, but it can, especially at that young age, that can give you an experience of going in there with pressure um, so how much did that kind of tournament, just being involved in and around that squad, mould you as a person and as a player, I suppose, that you, that you are now?
1: I think any major tournament at youth level um, or um, senior, senior level is a massive experience. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I think it's also well known that I didn't, didn't play in that tournament. Yeah. So that's when I now learned how to, I think, deal with, with not being chosen as a starter Um, and I think all these experiences just build build and kind of define you you know Um, and add to your personality but also I think obviously not winning that tournament and kind of getting a little exposure to what it can be like just I just wanted more Um, I knew that um, being at the tournament being at the under 20s world cup in japan was not the end i wanted more and that just kind of fueled a fire in me to keep working for potentially one day i'm gonna actually play in a world cup so to speak
0: which you did which we will come on to i promise <laughs> um i've guaranteed you that um I think it was after the World Cup. My timeline's not going to be perfect with this, but I'm pretty certain it was. You went to Colorado. I think, was that part of like a university degree? Because I know a lot of people go there as a dual thing.
1: Yeah. So um, I went to the uni- University of Central Florida, Florida so to Orlando uh, to get my uni degree, but also to play in the um, college football, the NCAA. Um, And I went to Colorado for the summer months. So usually how it worked is, that you went to uni from, say, August to May. And then mm-hmm. between May and August, you kind of had summer. There weren't any classes. So usually international students went home to spend the summer with their families. That's not me, though. <laughs> so I moved to Colorado because the Colorado team uh, competed in their so-called um, W League, which is like a summer league. Mm-hmm. It's then the semi-pro league. Um, so... I went to uni, August to May, and then May to August. I competed in the W W League, the Summer League, just to compete again, just to continue football. And um, that was me, and I did that for three years. Um, So I didn't go home for three years. I went home for Christmas every year. But um, again, I'm not a half-hearted person, so either I do or I don't. So for me, it was never a question whether I would go home for the summer months. I was always going to stay out there. Um, So that's how Colorado came about.
0: With, I mean, I know it now with the players that obviously are at um, Middlesbrough, obviously where we're Division 3, but a few players end of every season, you'll get a bulk of them will go over to America because cause the opportunities there. Um, soccer, as they, as they will call it, has obviously been popular there for a long time. A women's soccer, as I will call it again, um, for a long time as well, but... We've seen last season a lot of the American players, the big names, you know, the Alex Morkins, the Sam Lewis, the Rose Lavelle, come over to the WSL. And obviously there'll be multitude of reasons for that. But what I find quite interesting is like they wanted to come over here. Obviously, as the time is speaking, Abby Dalton is still here as well. Um, how much are UK academies from where you are now, or UK um, youth centres, shall we say if you prefer, beginning to match what's been going on in America for like, decades big pretty much in your opinion
1: um as far as I know obviously I don't know the details and yeah the in and out but um I know that there's there's WSL academies youth academies that once you graduate from there they still go to America so I don't even know what the comparison would be between the youth academies and the setups over in America but I do know that after the academies, if these girls don't get, I know, um, attracted by a club, say in the WSL championship, they do sometimes pick the option of going over to America. Um, I wouldn't even know what the comparison is to the youth academies um, yeah. in the UK, um, based in America. Um, for me, the reason to go to America was not only could I combine elite football high level football with getting a degree again for me is also kind of the challenge of yeah growing as a person I was moving not only away from home because i i I'd been living away from home for three years in but for me it was <laughs> moving to the other end of the world um I was growing as a person as an athlete um and I, I think it's just the constant challenge I'm looking for and that was for me the reason to move to America um And I really enjoyed my three years there. I really did Um, after that for me. However, it was time to move back. I'm very close to my family and I did miss my family. There's no doubt. Um, I think by that time I was quite used to not seeing them. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm very close to my family. And I think for me then it was time to. I didn't only want to move closer to my family, but also I wanted to compete in the Bundesliga again. Uh, When I left Hoffenheim, uh, when I was 18 to move to America, we'd we'd been competing in the so-called second Bundesliga. Um, By that time, Hoffenheim had gotten promoted into the Bundesliga and I was competing in the highest tier in Germany. And for me, that was the next challenge to go back and kind of prove myself in in the highest league in Germany. And that was the reason for coming back.
0: When you came back to Hoffenheim, that would have been 2015? Yeah. Come 2016, you contacted by England, which obviously I think, again, is not a not a huge secret and the moved you into. now you'll have to explain this to me because I didn't quite understand it fully and it was probably before I got into women's football which I like being honest about um the next generation squad as it was known um at that point obviously you accepted the invitation but did you feel like at that point obviously we know it's changed uh like the lionesses would be where your international future would lie um at that point that was
1: my only um not only option, but England had called up and I've got an English dad. And I think, as you said, that's not no news either. Um, yeah, it was the next generation camp, which I think is roughly equal to an under 23s now. Um, something like that, something down those lines. Um, but at that time, yes, I was honoured to get the call up. Um, I think I'd be lying if I said, oh, no, like I always knew it was Scotland. No, I didn't, because at that point, Scotland hadn't come in. Mm-hmm. Um I think for some people it might be difficult to understand, but I grew up in, in an environment where my mum was Scottish, my dad was English, and I, I, I was born and grew up in Germany. I went to a German school, so even though English was my mother tongue, German was my first language. Um, so I get the call up from, from England, my dad being English, of course it was an honour. I'm not going to deny that, Um, but you mentioned it yourself. Now I'm happy where I'm at, and... Getting the call up eventually from Scotland, that just felt right, um, and I'm very, very happy that that it all worked out in the end.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's funny you should say that you hadn't received the call at that point, and and you think the time you could have maybe received that call. I think it was less than a year afterwards. Obviously, Shelly Kerr gets appointed about a week beforehand, give or take.
1: No, at that time, um, Anna was still in charge. Um, when you got was, called up originally. Yeah. yeah.
0: So when you receive that call, what goes kind of through your mind when you get it? Because let's be honest, like you say, let's not lie about it. You had the choice of so three three international teams at that point, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, so I, I don't know if people know this, but like obviously I got called up to the England um, next-gen squad, um, left that camp and um, never heard back. Um, mm. But for me, that wasn't the end. I just kind of kept doing what I had been doing anyways and just trying to be the best version of myself, um, for the time being, um, just, just in case I got a call up, um, and then obviously I got, got the phone call and I think it's no secret either that obviously Lisa Evans had a, a part to play in that, um, people know that as well, but, um, I think because I do grew up in, in Germany, people didn't know I was also Scottish, um. You know, on them websites, you're always listed at. I was always listed as as English and German. Mm -hmm. Um, The Scottish flag never came up, but that's also because people didn't know my mum was Scottish. Um, So that's why the connection was never made. But obviously, Lisa knew, so she kind of got it all rolling. And when I got that phone call, um, there was no second of hesitation at all.
0: Where's your mum from, if you don't mind me asking? Which part of Scotland? Fife. She's from Fife? Yeah, okay. I write for that paper, so that's fine. Um, (laughs) Random. Um, It's probably a really obvious question to ask, but I I would like to ask it nonetheless. Um, You've sort of explained some of it there. But what convinced you that Scotland was the the right move? And then what solidified that it was the right move for you once you got into the squad?
1: I think the, yeah, me being convinced initially was just that immediate feeling of belonging, I think, their team was very welcoming. Um, and that got yeah strengthened by me seeing the quality on the pitch, the togetherness, sorry, off and on the pitch. And as I said, immediately I felt part of it, but yeah. part of something big, if that makes sense. Um, and that just kind of inspired me and and made me realise I could be part of something massive here.
0: I mean, you're right in what you're saying at 100%, because unbeknown to you at that point, obviously, when you were called up, which would have been 2017, um shortly afterwards, Scotland are qualifying for, you know, the, the first time they've qualified for a big major tournament. Uh, but at that point, obviously, you wouldn't have known that the World Cup was happening and stuff like that. But there's a lot of players there that were in that squad at that point, are very, very young Aaron Cospett, you touched before on, Alyssa Evans as well. Joe Love would have been in that team. Ross, Caroline Weir, Leanne Crichton. A lot of the players that are still with the squad now, um, some of them have exploded. Like Caroline Weir is obviously the biggest one, ridiculous talent. But the people that... This is going to sound like I'm asking you to dig them out. This is probably the wrong thing to ask, but nonetheless. The team that you came into then, does it feel like the same set of girls now with most of them being exactly the same not exactly the same squad, but a lot of the similar squad. Do you feel like you've grown together?
1: Um, I'd, I'd definitely say we've grown together. Um, I think the squad has changed somewhat um, <laughs> based on maybe age, based on change of management, so selection. But we definitely have grown and, and kind of yeah, bonded. Um, a lot of the girls... That were within the squad when I got the call up are still there, and I'm still or I am very close with. Um, and I think that defines the team, and that's why I think this team is so special because we have this bond with one another. And international football is interesting because obviously you don't meet up every week or every day like you do with with club. Um, but it's like when you, you know, when you describe it as when you see friends after a long, long time, it's like nothing has changed. That's how it is with. Um, camp, and I think with the Scotland team, and I think we're all really excited to get back together when it's time for camp. And over the years, um, through the major tournaments, through the ups and ups and downs, we've just bonded so much, and that really makes the squad and team so strong.
0: I really liked. I watched an interview that you when you spoke about your time at Reading, which you won't labour on it too much. You had injuries; it didn't work out too well for you. That's sometimes happens in football. I, I get that completely. But well, what I quite liked about the time that you had there, you said when you were out with, I think it was a was it hamstring tear twice? Yeah. 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 Um you mentioned that the Scottish team, the Scottish girls would text you, keep you going when probably one of your lower rebs um that you've had as a footballer. So if you don't mind me asking, what kind of was it the whole team or was it specific people you got quite close to? Like how close knit is that squad? Is it the full 22 or all like knitted together?
1: Um i think obviously in every team you have the people you are closer with compared to others
0: yeah of course
1: i think what was so special in my situation is i hadn't been within the scotland setup for too long obviously by that time i think it was two years maybe and mm-hmm. um, that i'd been part of the the squad um and it wasn't only my my closest scotland friends that had messaged me that i'm in touch with anyways but it was players that I wasn't in touch with on a regular basis. That I wasn't messaging every day. That actually reached out to me. I think to give one example was Kim Little. We know what a football legend Kim Little is, and for her to actually take take some time and reach out to me and just just tell me to keep going, and that just meant a lot. And that did keep me going. um Probably Kim doesn't even know how much it meant to me, but there were obviously other people. Rachel Coursey is a great leader. She reached out to me as well. That's just to name two massive. Scotland legends, personalities, great football players. Um, Obviously, like Christy Murray, I'm very close. With. She was reaching out to me very often. And that uh, us being close and, and messaging a lot doesn't mean that it meant less. It yeah. was just more of a surprise um, to get their messages from players And she wasn't close with or actually thought I wasn't close with because that, I think, speaks volume.
0: And that kind of stuff keeps you going, doesn't it, when you're out of low-ebb? You need that, really. You need people to be looking out for you.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think at Reading, um, you might have, as you just mentioned, seen that interview on the podcast and um, I was away from my family and that was my first mm-hmm. major injury and I was out for a month, two months longer than I should have been just because everything re and just didn't go the way it should have. Um, so in that moment, Scotland was my family and it's hard to believe for some, some players maybe or someone listening, but my family was so far away that scotland in that situation was my family and i kind of gravitated towards them um and yeah mom some people might not understand because obviously i could ring my family but you don't want to bother your family they're they're stressed enough anyways they're worried enough anyways because they can't help um and yeah they were far away um you just have to yeah yeah I, I think obviously scotland helped scotland helped me massively but you just have to kind of deal with it yeah. There's no other
0: way of putting it You played under, you mentioned, I didn't actually realise this, which is quite good. You played under Anna, obviously, came in the squad with, you played under Shelley as well. Um, Shelly, I really like when she's on TV. Maybe I'm biased because she's on Rangers TV a lot. Um, but I, I really like hearing her speak. She knows the game inside out. And I think she's one of those people which I quite enjoy hearing speak on TV because I see other males next to me who are sitting in the go. Oh yeah, and I'm like, and she's helping build that so much. But how much did you enjoy playing under both of them?
1: Um, enjoyed both phases, both stages. Um, I think very different managers. Mm-hmm. Um, learned, learned, and developed in both environments differently. But that just added to not only my game but my personality. But I can only say I, I enjoyed it both. Um, I think. I believe, I believe in it's. You're in charge of making the most of any situation and getting out of it what you want to get out of it. So um, even though maybe, of course, Anna called me up and gave me my debut. I think I didn't play as frequently, um, but I still developed in a different way. Maybe, but um, I enjoyed both. I enjoyed working with Anna and also with Shelley.
0: Obviously, you went to Euro two thousand and seventeen um, shortly after. Obviously, your, your first call, I believe. Now, while you didn't play, obviously, it was a monumental moment for the Scottish women's team, which then got, as we know, you know, uh, encapsulated by a, a different tournament. But you've sort of touched on it anyway, in a, in a sense. But. Even though you didn't play in those games, going to that tournament, the qualifying stages, everything that came with you in 2017, could you start to feel as a squad that you were building something special and that something even bigger was going to come at that point?
1: Yeah, I think obviously that was the first major tournament for Scotland and that was a massive achievement for the team. So my disappointment, I had to neglect because mm-hmm. it was all about the team and it's, that's something I live by. It's, in the end, it's about the team. Um but yes, to answer your question, I could definitely feel that we were building something that big things were ahead of us. I think obviously we're missing some key key players in that tournament um, because of injury. But I think partially competing now on obviously in a, in a major tournament, I think it showed us that we were a little bit further off that we than we potentially had thought. Um, I think we were competing against teams, but then against others we were. Um, just too far behind. Um, But that just um, inspired us to work even harder to potentially qualify again for a major tournament.
0: And as it did happen, you know, two years later, Scotland do qualify for the First World Cup, which you knew we were going to come on to, which I've got in. Obviously, I watched the tournament at the time as well, but I'm I'm currently reading a book called Arrival, if anyone hasn't read it. Really great book um, about the qualification and, and everything that went into it, the emotion behind it. Obviously, I think a lot of people know about the... Not so much, you can't officially say it was a banning of women's football, but it basically was, um, whichever way you want to put it, and that's me saying that. Um, I think when you put everything that happened in women's football years before I was born and, and where Scotland got to, and it was the fact that the first sort of qualifying, when you beat Albania, how long did it take for it to actually sink in that you were going to a World Cup as a, a Scotland international?
1: Um, I think <laughs> leading up to the final whistle, um, I think we knew, or we thought we knew what we'd achieved, but things like that don't don't sink in until a while afterwards. Um, I think the moment that, even though there was such a long build up of preparation, um, I think the moment that I realised this was actually happening is when we got onto the plane to fly to France. Um, we had the massive send off game um, against Jamaica which I did score yeah. um, but the, the moment that we got onto the plane I think that for me was okay this is happening and that's only uh, right before we get to France right before the tournament um, so things like that you, I think you think you've realised and it sunk in but um, yeah it didn't until that moment
0: it's such a big thing as well. And and you know what? I mean, World Cups are big anyway, but World Cup prior to that was big. The World Cup that came with that was far bigger. Um, it felt like it was like, oh, that's a step forward. And then the World Cup after that kind of went Phew! like out of nowhere. Like I remember people going getting cans, sitting around watching the TV. I had friends that had gone to the, the tournament that had never been before and all that kind of stuff. But before I go fully into the tournament, how much did you enjoy scoring the goal against Jamaica?
1: Oh, I think you can imagine. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was an amazing feeling. It was my first international goal and um, it was quite a nice goal as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the way the game had gone, um, it meant even more. Um, you want to win a send off game. Mm-hmm. Um, and then winning and scoring the winning goal at Hamden in front of 18,000, I think 555, I think it was um, people. I had family in the stands as well um yeah you can imagine it It was a massive day and one I will definitely not forget
0: it's funny you mentioned Hamden Hamden's just like outside my window and just around the corner <laughs> so like I live literally at Hamden Park so oh,
1: nice
0: yeah well that's not bad it's not bad um were you up against Kayla McCoy that day am I right in saying that for Jamaica um, I'm,
1: I'm
0: gonna sure. say I'm gonna say yes oh, um
1: I'll leave it there <laughs>
0: When it goes to the, the opening game, now correct me if I'm wrong with this because I'm one of those weird people that's lived in Scotland that long. I'll support Scotland, but I'm also English. Um, you didn't feature against Japan, but it was England where you played it right back. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes, I thought so. Yeah. So, so disappointment when you don't start in the opening game, but you're still in the tournament. You know you're going to be there or thereabouts in the squad. You start against England, probably Scotland's biggest game based on A, rivalry, B, the where it's at, C, what it means. So you're born in Germany. You've got a Scottish mother, and I, you know, I know I know Scottish moms. Um, so I know that you <laughs> had a, a lot of, um, a lot of know how about Scotland growing up, and then an English dad. But you're standing in coming out the tunnel against England at a World Cup. You're wearing the jersey. You're standing shoulder to shoulder. You, you know, the first Scottish woman who to not qualify for the tournament. You're singing "Flower of Scotland." How emotional is all that? And how do you manage to put that to one side to actually play the game? Because it must be huge.
1: Yeah, it's funny that you ask that because um, I've been asked that before and I had to think about it because in the moment you just act. Um, I think when people ask me about a favourite moment within my career, that was definitely one, Uh, Mm -hmm. playing against England, um, being selected in the starting 11, walking out of the tunnel, singing the anthem, um, the Scottish team being tight anyways. But I remember that I was telling myself that the occasion cannot get the better of you. Um, and as much as I was emotional because I had my family drive over from, from Germany, um, had them all there, it um, it is something you work towards your whole career to be competing at a World Cup. Um, but I remember I was standing next to Christy Murray, who's also my roommate of Scotland, and as I've mentioned before, we were very close, and I had to pinch her. And I don't even know why I pinched her because clearly she should have pinched me because I was getting emotional. But I just to remember that, that I pinched her, and for for some reason, that made me think that, oh, I'm back in the moment. I don't really get why I acted the way I did, but that got me back in the moment. And as I said before, and um, I constantly remind myself that it's just a game of football. Of course, it was probably the biggest game of my career mm-hmm. um, at that point, definitely. But I had to strip it down to it's an 11 v 11 um, to take all the emotion out of it. Um, I was pumped. No, no question. I definitely was. I don't think I needed any, what's it, energy gel gels, caffeine gels, because I was pumped anyways. But um, in that situation, I had to strip it down to it's 11v11. Um, I had to obviously pinch Christie, which I just, just mentioned, and I was back in the moment. And then throughout the 90 minutes, or I think the 75, what I played, I was just focused on my job. And that was to not let the ringer beat me. And that was my job. And that's what I focused on.
0: Would I be right in saying, because I have to mention her, she was my first ever guest on this podcast, Beth Mead. Um was, yeah. That's who you're <laughs> up against. I mean, Beth, obviously, because she was one of the first women footballers i ever watched in the flesh, I have like a, a natural thing where I just love her because of that, because I was used yeah. to at Sunderland when <laughs> I was growing up, um, well, mid-twenties. Um, how good is she? Obviously, you you working on your job, but when you get a look back on the game two years on, like how good is Beth Mead and how tough is she come up against?
1: Beth Mead is a class player. She's a class winger, um, good on both feet with both feet. Um, difficult to defend because she can cut inside or outside. Usually, when you when you do your scouting, when you do your your analysis, you can almost try and come up with a plan, how to defend a player. I think that's what I've learned through the years, even within the game. You you assess how a a player likes to attack, but Beth Mead likes to chop inside and outside. So what are you going to do now? Yeah. Um, But yeah, a class, class winger. And um, for me, the biggest thing is that Beth Mead got subbed off, not because she had a pool game at all, because she played really well, but that was my job done because she didn't score against me. Did she get a few crosses? And yeah, she did. But sometimes you lose it 1v1. One one. Uh, but I think I did a decent job. My task was to, um, yeah, not have have any glory. And I think I managed. And that is not saying you had a poor game because you still had a good game. Um, But, you but, can, you, you but can your job do your is job to keep it as quiet as have. possible. Yeah. yeah. And I think someone can have still have a good game, but you still do your job. Um, Yeah.
0: You talked before about Euro 2017, how going there... And the results that happened made you believe that maybe you're, you're further behind than you thought you were. And obviously you look at the two England games in both tournaments. No one wants to go, oh, well, that's a positive in defeat. But you sometimes have to be like, when you get beat, can you can I take a positive out of that? What are the positives and what do I need to work on? From 6-0 to 2-1, close, much closer game in a really short space of time at a major tournament. Was that kind of the one positive that you were able to take into the Argentina game?
1: Yeah, I think it definitely showed us how far we'd come to the previous Mm -hmm. um, game against England. Um, I still think through our performance, we didn't do ourselves justice. Um, But it definitely did show what you just mentioned, how far we'd come and that we're on the right track. Um, would I have loved to beat England? Yes, 100%. I mean, I don't go into the game just saying, oh, let's be better the next time, uh, last time. Yeah. No, well, we went in to win the game. Um, I don't think we had our best game. Um, England played really well. And <laughs> as hard as it is to say, I think the better team won, won that evening.
0: They, they had a good tournament. Well, we had a good tournament. They, we, I don't know which way i going with this year. <laughs> um, England
1: had a good tournament. <laughs> England had
0: a good tournament. That's exactly correct. Um, I will come on to it. Uh, and I know that because I spoke to Nick Dock, I spoke to a few players who were involved in the game. And, and naturally, it's a bit of a sore point, but there's definitely a positive ending to this, right? But, but bear with me. So he came on late in the Argentina game. Score is 3-2. Yeah. Argentina pushing forward, as you'd expect. You put a tackle in. Ref goes to VAR. As fans, we haven't got a clue what VAR really like at that point or how much we'd come to hate it, which I do. Um, As a player, you're exactly the same. You haven't grew up with it. So for those two minutes, I mean, whilst I checked it over, it was a penalty. How did you personally feel in those moments? Because it was your tackle, they're looking at it, and you're thinking, oh, God, the first VAR decision, shall we say? What was going through your head?
1: I think, first of all, for me, it didn't feel like two minutes. It felt like 22 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean the fact that it took them so long To actually determine whether it was a penalty or not Just makes me Think okay it couldn't have been that Clear of a penalty um, It's one of them things uh, The In that moment The only option I had was to tackle Because she was going to score That was going through my head um, I had to try and block that shot Because she had an open shot um, I thought about it I think if I was in that situation again I'd do it again because in that moment, that was, in my head, that was the only thing to do. Um, it was just unfortunate that it was my first action of the game. I got subbed on when it was um, a free kick for Argentina. Um, they kind of broke or we couldn't defend the free kick. And I, I found her in front of the goal facing Lee, Lee Alexander. And my only thing that I, in that moment, thought to do was to tackle. Um but then 22 minutes were horrible um it's just that not knowing um you know what the percentages are um for a penalty um to save that um obviously it got safe. but got called back that's a story for itself um it was a hard hard one it was so many things were going through my head um but you try and keep your cool. You try and just convince yourself, now it wasn't a penalty. Or if it is a penalty, are oh, we going to save it? We're going to keep this game. Like, we're going to keep the score. Um, we're going to actually go through to the next round, which didn't happen.
0: The <laughs> Thing is, I mean, I watched the game live, obviously, I remember it like it was yesterday, to be honest. Because um, obviously, I was living in Scotland at the time and I, I watched it with interest. When... You go through that nightmare, you think, God, that could, I hope that never happens again. You know, scores are not. Yeah, you know, hopefully she saves it. We'll just go on. That can hopefully never happen again. And then, like, five minutes later, it does. Um, hmm. Lee Alexander saves it. You all erupt and, and you go, like, Right, I, I think it went for a corner. And, and you kind of concentrate on the corner, but, you know, celebrating with Lee Alexander. Then the ref blows up and goes, No, 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 hang on. So you've just lived like a two minute or 22 minute nightmare. How much worse was the second one?
1: Oh, my God, it was a roller coaster. I don't know how else to describe it. It was horrendous. It was like a horror film. So I remember, obviously, Lee saving the penalty. <laughs> the amount of relief I felt. So it was actually, I ran up to Lee and literally, I think, gave her a kiss on the uh, forehead just because I was so relieved and thankful that she had saved that penalty. And obviously, it was a great save. And then it wasn't immediately after that. We, we played on for a couple of, it felt minutes, but well, probably like a minute. And then she blows the whistle again. And in that moment, I thought it was a foul for us, that we were getting the free kick. And then she points to the spot again. And I was well confused what had happened. And we were all looking around what just happened. And then she said, oh, we're taking the penalty. Obviously, we were fuming. Um, I mean, the fact that they they took away that goalkeeping rule after that game, just yeah. for me, just doesn't make sense at all. But obviously, we're in that game she goes up again, and I'm just praying that Lee saves it again. And they score. <laughs> it was horrendous. I don't even know how to put that, all my feelings and thoughts in that moment into words because it was such an up and down within a minute, and I'd never felt that before. Football games are up and downs, anyways, within a ninety minute. That was within one minute. It
0: was chaos for like, yeah, like chaos for a minute. It was like it, even as fans, we were watching it, and obviously my dad. I was watching it with my dad, my, da- my dad's England, my dad's an England fan, yeah. but he was watching it and obviously he knew I wanted Scotland to win because of where I lived and stuff like that. And he was just like, what are they doing? And I was like, yeah. I don't understand you." And I think the worst part was, we all knew VAR was coming in, but it was so new then. We're kind of yeah. used to it now that like we, we kind of, I mean, Scotland qualify um, for the Euro. David Marshall doesn't celebrate for the best part of 30 seconds because he's waiting for the referee to say, yeah, yeah, you were fine. Like All that situation and like you're kind of used to it now, but then it was just like, and then obviously it goes in and and almost like the way it went in, it was almost like you must have felt, Lee Alexander especially, you especially, you must have felt like something was just against you that night.
1: Oh, I think... To sum it up, then I think we were meant to play five extra minutes. Yeah. And like I think the 91st yeah. minute probably she blows that whistle. So for me, it was just like one on top of the other. Because I remember when we conceded that goal, Rachel Corsi looked at me and said, just go forward. <laughs> Doesn't matter what happens back here, just go. So I was running forward and then not long after that, she blows the whistle. We were just like, "You just took 22 minutes to check out bar?" And now after one minute, you're blowing the whistle, what's happening? I remember that. That just made me feel like she was not convinced in her decision and she was just desperate to get, get off that pitch. But I remember when she blew that whistle, we were just looking at each other and we were just like, what just happened? This cannot be actually legit. This can't be the rules.
0: She didn't play that. That's right. Yeah, I totally forgot that even happened. She oh, didn't play
1: things
0: that night. the fall. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think because you have all those emotions which you can tell you still feel now and i mean the way i'm kind of like speaking about it even i'm a bit like bloody hell i remember that when that happened yeah. you obviously still feel it because you lived it and you were you were like part of that team but i think the only thing that you could really do and this there's, there's photos everywhere which i've been told off for mentioning before but nonetheless um nick doc's crying lee alexander's devastated Aaron, poor Aaron, crying her eyes out naturally After something like that, you sort of, even as tight-knit as you may be, you need a moment to yourself, I think. Um, So who was the first person to step up and and speak in the dressing room after you'd kind of consoled yourself as best as you could?
1: Um, I think for me personally, because I was standing on the pitch by myself for a moment, because as you said, I needed a moment to myself, Um, the first person that actually came up to me and went out of her way and put her disappointment of potentially not playing that game aside and came up was Hayley. And just put her arm, arm around me and we literally hugged for, it felt like a couple of minutes. Um, but then after we'd all kind of gathered, gathered ourselves and made our way back into the changing room, or even before that, to be honest, um, for me, it was Rachel Corsi, obviously a great leader, and Shannon mm-hmm. Lynn that got us together. And instead of everyone going their separate ways, we came together in a huddle. And it was them two for me that got us together and we were still one team and as much as everyone needed their own time, which everyone respected, we were in it together and we win together and we lose together and you could feel that that night. And to answer your question, for me, it was Rachel and, and Shannon that brought us together. And it's interesting because obviously Rachel played in that game. She played every game. Shannon didn't, but that didn't mean that one or the other wasn't allowed to or didn't feel comfortable to. Both are great leaders and they just brought us together and kind of said we're in this together it's we still can't believe what just happened but yeah uh, the one thing we did know was we had one another
0: i know there's been the the disappointment of not qualifying for this euros i i know that and i, I certainly don't want to labor on it but as i touched on before I'm, I'm reading the book about it at the moment the entire story like the the 50 year story not the the 5 minute yeah. crazy story <laughs> the, the whole thing um Two years on, although it's hard to look back, it's probably always going to be. Like, you know, a lot of difficult moments in sport and life kind of are with us. Um, Can you now see the tournament as a whole, the qualification, being at the World Cup for the first time, singing the national anthem, progressing as a team, putting Scotland on the world stage? Do you see it now for the momentous achievement that it actually was rather than just those mad five minutes that could have quite easily defined you? Um,
1: No, definitely. it was. Obviously, the first World Cup we qualified for. Um, we were competing with world-class teams. We were finally competing with England. We mm-hmm. weren't just playing against England. Uh, we were definitely competing with J- Japan and with Argentina. You should have beat Argentina. Um, and obviously, it took some time to get over what happened in France, what happened, especially in the game against Argentina. But looking back, we, I think we learned as a team, um, it's again one one of them experiences that you can look at them at from two different angles you can let that define you and just say oh we're not good enough to compete on the world, world stage or you can say we weren't good enough that tournament because we weren't I don't think um, that's a secret because we're a team that plays with bravery and we were lacking that in that tournament and as I said in the England game but I think it goes for all three games we didn't do ourselves justice but we learned from that experience, and we need to play with bravery, and that is what Scotland is—bravery. Um, I think people would laugh and like, "Oh yeah, brave hard, whatever." No, no, no. Like Scotland is bravery, and that's how that's how we qualified because we played like that. Um, I remember the qualifying games against Switzerland. Who thought we'd ever beat Switzerland? But we did because we believed in one another and we went for it. And I think now looking back to the tournament. Um, we've learnt from it and um, we've got even closer as a team and we've inspired so many young girls and that is a massive achievement in itself
0: Yeah, absolutely Sophia. I really enjoyed the chat I hope you did as well, thank you so much
1: No, you're very welcome, I thoroughly enjoyed it Yeah